I've uh, really been looking forward to this time. You guys have been through some changes. And I just met your pastor, and uh, I've heard so many good things. Uh, and I'm glad the bills are paid, at least to this point. <laughs> if you'd take an offering, you'd get more. <laughs> and if you've got to put those things in the... Man, I'd put the boxes. They'd have to crawl over them to get out of here. Uh, pastors are always wondering what you're going to do about the offering. I used to say when I was a pastor, till the elders made me stop, that if you're a pagan, keep your money in your pocket. We don't want your money. And the elders said, Pastor, you've got to stop that. Our offerings have doubled. Nobody wants to think, for others to think they're pagans, and so they dig in and give money. So I quit that. Uh, but that is so cool, and you're just, I know that in transition and over this past year, uh, that it's been hard financially for this church, and you guys have remained faithful, and that's because a spiritual giant has prayed for you daily. <laughs> that would be Jesus. <laughs> And I don't think my prayers have hurt. But if you don't make budget by the end of the year, let me know and I'll quit praying. It'll be good. But I just uh, love this church. And I've loved this church from its very beginning. And I do pray for you and rejoice over you every morning of my life. And thanks for having me back. Some churches won't. <laughs> I uh, would often speak at People's Church in Toronto, Canada, and the pastor there, uh, after I'd gone the first time, uh, took out an ad in the Toronto papers, and it said a lot of churches wouldn't have him back, <laughs> but we invited him, so come out on Sunday and let him offend you. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we're overwhelmed with your kindness, your faithfulness in our lives. We remember where you found us, the loneliness and the emptiness and the fear and, oh, the guilt. And then you came. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for Patrick, for the way you've anointed him and prepared him for this time, this place, your people. Father, you know everybody in this place this morning, and you know the roads that are hard, the diagnosis that wasn't so good, the kid who doesn't care, the parents who have nothing to do with you. Father, you know it all, and uh, you're sufficient for every need, and we're here.
Father, as always, we pray for the one who teaches, that you would forgive him his sins, because there are many we would see Jesus. Father, in this time, in this place, may we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. Tomorrow it starts from scratch again. And we see if we can do better next year than we've done this year. I don't know about you, but as I move into the new year, I'm ready for some hope. I'm cynical. I don't expect much. My expectations are low, but sometimes it's really so bad. You got Korea trying to blow us up politicians who have their knives out at each other, hatred that is so rampant that it's absolutely scary. You got hunger increasing. You got people who are depressed and suicidal. I'm ready. I'm ready for a little bit of hope. So this morning, let's talk about hope for the new year. Let me define it for you before we go to the scriptures. Check out what the scripture says about hope and you're going to be surprised. Hope is an unfulfilled desire that is accompanied sometimes, but not always, with a reasonable expectation that the desire will be fulfilled. Let me repeat it a little bit slower for the slower among us. Hope is an unfulfilled desire accompanied sometimes but not always with a reasonable expectation that the hope will be fulfilled. And then a corollary to that, we really are defined by our hopes. We've just gone through Christmas, and I'm sure that Simeon's name came up in this place. Simeon was an old man, and I get Simeon because I've been hoping for stuff I thought I was promised to. And Simeon had been told that he would see the Messiah before he died. And he did, and he pronounced his prophecy. With tears, he spoke about what would happen to Mary then he looked up to the clouds and he said, I can go home now. And the reason we know Simeon's name is because of his hopes. Paul talked in Philippians that he would like to go home and be with Jesus. That's a hope. And then he said, but it's better that I stay here with you. That's love. And in Romans, he says we live by hope because Paul was defined by his hopes. Let me read something to you that somebody sent me a couple of weeks ago. With the holidays close upon us, I would like to share a personal experience about drinking and driving. As you know, some of us have been known to have brushes with the authorities from time to time 
often coming home from a social session with family or friends. Well, two days ago, this happened to me. I was out for an evening with friends and had more than a several bourbons, followed by a couple of bottles of rather nice red wine and vodka shots. Although relaxed, I still had the common sense to know I was way over the limit. That's when I did something I've never done before. I took a taxi home. Sure enough, on the way, there was a police roadblock, but since it was a taxi, they waved it past, and I arrived home safely and without incident. This was a real surprise to me because I'd never driven a taxi before. <laughs> I don't know where I got it, and now that it's in my garage, I don't know what to do with it. So anyway, if you want to borrow it, give me a call, and Happy New Year. I saw a t-shirt not too long ago that said, everybody's got to believe in something. I believe I'll have another beer. Well, everybody's got a hope in something. You've heard from preachers, and I've said it myself on numerous occasions, that the worst thing that can happen to a person is to be hopeless. But actually, nobody's hopeless. In the thing I read to you, he was hopeful he wouldn't get a DUI on his way home. An alcoholic is hopeful for a drink and an addict for a hit. Job, in the worst time in his life, was not without hope. He hoped he could die. And if you've ever made a fool of yourself, and I have on numerous occasions, I hope I can hide and nobody will see me. Everybody hopes. Some are good hopes and some are bad hopes, but nobody or very few are hopeless. We don't see it. Because you see, hope wears a lot of masks. There's the mask of cynicism. I told you, I'm cynical. I'm a cynical old preacher. You guys don't fool me. I've been doing this longer than most of you have been alive. I've buried more babies. And I've cleaned up after more suicides. And I listen to more confessions. And I'm cynical. But I'm here. And the reason I'm here is because of hope. Because of the flashes of hope I see sometimes in the church when it becomes a soft place. When the Pharisee gets drunk and confesses his sins to his closest friends. <laughs> sometimes I see hope. I'm here because I got hope, but I mask it a lot in cynicism. Sometimes, sometimes we mask hope in anger. Fred Smith, who's my late mentor, was talking to a friend of his who was very hostile to the church, to the Christian faith, and to Christians. 
And he let it slip to Fred that he grew up in the church. And Fred said, oh, I didn't understand. Now I do. You're not angry. You're hungry. Sometimes, sometimes we mask hope with unbelief. Bertrand Russell, toward the end of his life, was on a television talk show. He's the famous atheist. And uh, the host said, as an atheist, and Russell said, wait just a second, I never said I was an atheist. All I said was, I don't know. That's called cramming for finals. It's the fear of the atheist that there might be God and a hope there isn't just as believers hope there is a God. Let me read to you something, and I copied it down, that Bertrand Russell wrote in the middle of his life. Through the long years I have sought peace, I found ecstasy, I found anguish, I found madness, I found loneliness, I found solitary pain that grows but peace I never found. Everybody's got hope. Sometimes it's masked in pretense. When, uh, when John Wesley came as a missionary, and this was before Aldersgate, when he was found by Christ by listening to Martin Luther's uh, commentary on Romans, but before that, he was a missionary. He was an ordained Anglican priest. And when he went as a missionary to America, he wrote in his diary that morning, I'm going to Georgia to save the heathen. But, oh, God, who will save me? Do you know the name Brant Hansen? He's a good friend of mine. He's a disc jockey on about 600 Christian radio stations. And he's wonderful. He's authentic and he's real. And he says things you don't expect Christians to say. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. He's written a book called God Bless the Misfits. And he told me, he said, I was at a concert in Florida. And he said there was an awesome band there was fog and there were lights and people were, young people were worshiping and they were lifting up their hands. And he said, I don't know why I said it, but when I got up, I asked a question. I said, how many of you looked around and you weren't feeling what everybody else was feeling, but you lifted your hands anyway? And Brent said, Steve, over half of them raised their hands and said, that's me. It's called faking it till you're making it. Hoping that if you pray enough and you read the Bible enough, if you go on a mission trip, if you worship and raise your hands and close your eyes, that maybe, maybe God will notice. It's a hope that masks itself in pretense. Let me read a text to you. Uh, 
and I guess I've taught the book of Hebrews hundreds of times, and I've never quite seen this text this way. And I only have three points, and I can hardly wait to share them with you, so stay awake. This is good stuff. The writer of Hebrews, and we have no idea who that was, opens this book in the first verses of the first chapter this way. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is... I've been thinking about this text for the last few days, and it blows me away. Let me tell you something about hope that's interesting. First, hope is given by God. You can't manufacture it. You can't work it up. You can't turn it on like a faucet. Hope is given by God. It's in our DNA. For all of recorded human history, People have looked to the skies and said, is there a God? And if there is a God, what in the world is he like? Is he a monster? Is he a child abuser? Does he demand the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Does he give a rip? Does he care? Does he love? And then very hesitantly, does he love me? And the laughter of God spilled over into the hopeful hearts of human beings. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. One of my uh, favorite writers is Frederick Buechner. He's a ordained Presbyterian minister, but he's... Um, made his living by writing. He's an old man now, and he's written a number of books, some of which uh, will blow you away. His father committed suicide, and they buried that sucker, and they never mentioned his name again in their family. Never once. 
And so he didn't mourn and he didn't process it and he wrote a novel about it and it was the only way he could work it out. But he was a chaplain at, and he's written three little autobiographical books. He was the chaplain at Phillips Exeter Academy and he talks about the time he got in the pulpit. The preacher steps into place, the congregation is silent, what in the world have they come in search of? Do they know? Do they really know at all why they're here? Expectancy. That's why they come, all those people, some hostile, some searching, some both at once, some young and some old. Their being there points to the event that is expected or appears to be expected, or at least if the place be dead and deserted, was once expected there. And the event they await is the sermon itself, in which, whether they recognize it or not, all of them want to find the answer to one question beyond all other questions, which is the question, is it true? Is it really true? Pascal said, that we all have a God-shaped vacuum and nothing fits but God. Facebook doesn't fit. Good Lord, politics doesn't fit. Twitter doesn't fit. Education doesn't fit. Money doesn't fit. The only thing that fits is God. And then you're well acquainted with Augustine's prayer, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they found their rest in thee. You hopeful? Are you one of those who raise your hands and you don't get the feeling that everybody else has? Do you sometimes wish you could reach out and touch Jesus do you sometimes wish you were absolutely sure? Do you sometimes say, I'm so lonely, can something be fixed in me? Are you hopeful? Fan it. Blow on the sparks and make a flame. Hope all you can because those questions have been given by God himself that you might ask them. If you're hungry, it doesn't prove that there's bread, but pretty good hope that there is. If you're thirsty, it doesn't prove that there is water, but it makes you hopeful that there must be somewhere. The God that you hope for is really there. Happy New Year. The second thing that I noticed in this text that I think that I hadn't seen before is that hope is not only given by God, it's defined by forgiveness. Notice, notice what the writer of Hebrews says right here. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I don't know about you, but I write books. And a good editor would have said that would be a good place to write about the miracles. That would be a good place to talk about his teaching, which was true. It would be a good place for his philosophy to be expressed. But the writer of Hebrews says one thing about Jesus, the purification of sins. I did my uh, pastoral uh, clinical work at the Harvard Experimental Hospital in Boston. It's hard to tell the patients from the doctors. That's a weird bunch of people. <laughs> I, I'm just having 20 stories go through my mind I want to tell you, and I don't have time. But let me tell you something that I discovered. Without exception, every person in that hospital was there because of guilt. Not only is hope a gift from God, guilt is a gift from God. And because our heart's desire, and we were created that way for God, the first thing we see in him is his holiness, his purity, his righteousness. And if you've never stood before God and been afraid, you've been worshiping an idol. He's not Santa Claus. And so there's the darkness that we know is inside, and everybody knows it. Atheist, agnostic, Christian, Presbyterian, everybody knows it. And the good news is forgiveness. You want to know what the Christian faith is about? That's it. I mean, we can talk about the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis if you want to. I teach seminary students how to communicate the gospel because Reformed people don't know how to talk. I tell them I don't need this job. And I'm not your mother, but if you listen, you'll learn something. We can talk about proper exegesis, the theology of Burkhoff, the Institutes of Calvin, but that's not it. That's not it, guys. It's forgiveness. You're forgiven. You say, <laughs> you don't know what I've done, man. And the only reason I didn't more is I didn't have time. It's about forgiveness. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've been drinking, who you've hurt, who you're sleeping with. I don't care what you think. I don't care about your doubts. I don't care what you've done. It's about forgiveness. And you're forgiven. If you know him, you're forgiven. Happy New Year. And then there's one other thing, and then we're finished. Hope is not only at New Year's uh, given by God and defined by forgiveness. 
it's guaranteed by authority. One of the finest Christological statements ever made in Scripture is made in this text. It says everything was created by Jesus. He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word. Whoa. Now let me give you a principle. The efficacy of the hope you hold is dependent on the authority of the person who gave it to you. The efficacy of the hope you hold is dependent on the authority of the one who gave it to you. Charles Williams was the editor of the Oxford Review and was a very close friend of C.S. Lewis. If you've read his novels, they're obtuse, but they're kind of fun. He wrote a history of the Holy Spirit called The Descent of the Dove, never had a degree. When he died, C.S. Lewis wrote in a book that was dedicated to Charles Williams, the idea of death met the idea of Charles Williams, and the idea of death died. But Charles Williams has a theme in his books that if you're afraid, I'll be afraid for you, and then I get afraid, and I take your fear. If you've, if you've had a bad diagnosis, I can take it from you, and I'll have the diagnosis, and you'll be free. You know the composer, Felix Mendelssohn. You probably never heard of Abraham Mendelssohn. He was a banker and the father of the composer. And some of you may have in Philosophy 101 heard of Moses Mendelssohn. He was a very, very famous philosopher. He was also a hunchback. When he was young, he fell in love with a very beautiful lady, and she avoided him because of his deformity. He decided to try one other thing, so he went to her, and he said, do you believe that God has prepared one man for one woman in heaven before we're born? And she said, yes. And he said, God prepared you for me. When I looked at you, I said to him, she is beautiful, but she's a hunchback. Somebody that beautiful shouldn't have to have that deformity. Please give it to me. And that, he said, is why I'm a hunchback. She fell in love with him. They were married. They had six children, all of whom shine. I love that story because that's, that's what Jesus did, and he's the authority. You lonely? I'll take that for you. Are you ashamed? I'll take that for you. Are you afraid? I'll take that for you. Have you been abused? 
I'll take that for you. Happy New Year. <laughs> I got a I got a book from a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. He's a preacher in New England, young man. I've known him for years. He said, if you'll look in this book, one of your stories, it's a book of stories. And he said, one of your stories I stole and gave you credit. And so I flipped through to a place he marked and read the story and I didn't remember it. And he said, I have a missionary friend who checked it out. So in case you just made it up, it really happened. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you the story. There was this lady... And she was suicidal. And she was thinking about a way to end her life because life was meaningless. She was in a restaurant, and that's what she was thinking about when she overheard a conversation between a pastor and a man in the restaurant. And she listened carefully, and for some reason, hope welled up in her heart. So when they left, she found out the name of the pastor and the church that he served, and went and worshipped in his church the next Sunday. She went through the whole service thinking maybe there's a reason to live. And so during the week, she decided to call him. At the same time, the pastor received the message that his father-in-law in another state was dying. And so he and his wife decided they had to go then. He told his associate because he would preach the next Sunday, but he didn't tell anybody else, including the receptionist, when on Monday the phone at the church rang and the lady in tears said, I would like to speak with the pastor. The receptionist said, honey, he's not here today, but I'll give you his home number. She said, oh, please. So the receptionist gave the lady the pastor's home number. Meanwhile, the pastor and his wife are making their way on a highway to be at the deathbed of the wife's father. And they stopped at a 7-Eleven in another state. And as they were going in the 7-Eleven, the payphone, for those of you who are young, we used to have those. And the, they walked by the payphone and it rang. And as a fluke, he picked it up and said, hello. And the voice said, is this Pastor Bill? And he said, yeah, how did you know I was here? She said, well, the receptionist gave me your home number. And he said, let me tell you where I am. And he told her. And they talked. And they prayed. Uh, and made an appointment to meet when he got back. Whoa. <laughs> Is that something? The efficacy of your hope is dependent on the authority and the power of the one who gave it to you. If you listen to what I taught you this morning, wherever you go, 
whatever you do, bad or good, he knows you and he loves you and he gave you the hope that you have for the new year. You think about that. Amen.